Good evening. So tonight is the second to last Sunday of this retreat. And based on what some of you have been sharing with us in the practice meetings, I'm guessing some of you already knew that. (laughs) And probably some of you could also tell me exactly how many days there are to go until the end. So some of you may be counting down with eager anticipation, and some of you may be counting down with anxiety or even dread. But whatever your attitude is right now, yet another powerful opportunity to bring awareness to right effort. And just to notice if there's any tendency to flip between pushing too hard or giving up too soon as the finish line is getting a little closer. We still have plenty of valuable time to look more carefully at those often hidden unconscious assumptions about what good practice is and how it is supposed to develop. And I think many of us teachers, we've been using metaphors from nature to try to convey that practice does not unfold through a forced mechanical approach. It's an organic one that develops naturally according to conditions. So as I think we've mentioned earlier, the Pali word that's usually translated as meditation is bhavana. And bhavana literally means cultivation in the sense that crops or plants are cultivated. And implied in that term is the understanding of practice as as about taking care, attuning to, nurturing, nourishing, rather than pushing and forcing. So staying with that natural imagery, the other night in Diana's talk on inspiration, she mentioned the redwood trees of California and how majestic they are, how immensely strong and stable and upright and ancient And I've had the good fortune to be on retreat at the Insight Retreat Center in Scotts Valley, California, quite a few times. And probably, as many of you here know, there are a few redwood trees at that center. And on one retreat, I vividly remember walking in the shade of these giant trees and noticing in the forest floor around them these tiny, tender seedlings. And it struck me as miraculous that every one of those magnificent, huge redwoods was at one stage just a vulnerable little shoot, one that could easily have been trampled by my careless foot if I hadn't been practicing mindfulness. And one evening as I was walking amongst those giant trees and the tiny seedlings, the contrast between those two states reminded me of a time in my own practice development early on when it felt like the Dharma was metaphorically just beginning to sprout in me. And back then, it felt like there was, I was growing this tiny seedling, one that was very vulnerable. And I had to work hard to protect it from all kinds of challenges. Challenges such as, at times, hostility or cynicism from other people. And of course inner challenges, my own hindrances and afflictive patterns. 
And it felt like it took quite a bit of effort to keep protecting and nurturing that seedling. And eventually, these days, it feels more like a sapling. And I can be more relaxed and just trust that this inner Dharma growth is continuing more and more of its own accord. And I don't need so much to micromanage that process anymore. So maybe this organic metaphor, maybe it resonates for some of you here, almost like we're nurturing a kind of inner Dharma garden. We're establishing all of the causes and conditions that have to come together for the seeds of wisdom to germinate, to grow, to bear fruit. Now, coincidentally, or maybe not, Brian has spoken about seeds a couple of times now. And listening to him last night, I share a similar fascination with how do seeds germinate, both metaphorically and on the literal level. And it's curious to me that all of us here, over the course of this retreat, and probably in many previous retreats too, we have heard hours and hours and hours of Dharma teachings. And some of these teachings, they immediately resonate. But not all of them stick. Not all of them have metaphorically germinated, at least not yet. Why? Well, my sense is that the strength of our ignorance and, ignorance and delusion act as barriers to clear seeing, to insight, to transformative wisdom. So just for a moment, flipping from the metaphorical level of wisdom seeds germinating to how seeds actually germinate, maybe there are some useful parallels. I got interested a few years ago now at a time when I was living in Australia in the Blue Mountains region west of Sydney. And the greater Blue Mountains area is a huge, a vast world heritage site. I think it's about 4,000 square miles of stunningly beautiful wilderness, forested landscape on ancient sandstone plateaus that are carved into deep canyons. It's also an area that's more and more susceptible to wildfires, or bushfires as they're called in Australia. And after one pretty bad bushfire season, I read about how scientists were trying to, do, to help native plant seeds to germinate after the fires. And apparently this was a pretty challenging job because each different species had very different conditions that allowed it to germinate. So some seeds needed to be misted with smoke-infused water that had just the right amount of smoke, just the right pH level. Other species had evolved in a relationship with ants, and the ants would take the seeds down into their burrows underground and then gradually nibble off the covering of the seed. So the botanists had to work out how to scratch and scar those seeds to mimic what the ants were doing so the seeds would germinate. Still other seeds had to pass through the digestive tracts of certain birds or mammals. And I'm not sure how the botanists replicated that one. (laughs) And then I read that in other parts of the world, apparently there are some seeds that only germinate if they're stood on by an elephant. (laughs) And when I read about that, I thought, that's me. (laughs) 
some of my dharma seeds. The delusion, it just needs to be stood on by an elephant. (laughs) Because sometimes that's what it feels like it takes to penetrate the solidity of delusion and let some wisdom start growing. So as I was reflecting on all this, on how sometimes we do seem to need some pretty harsh treatment before we start to wake up. I was thinking about a a phrase that a friend of mine used recently, and she spoke about how the Dharma can be experienced in, in a couple of ways. At times, the Dharma can be experienced as confronting, confrontation, and at other times, as consolation. So confrontation, consolation. I understand this idea comes from Christianity, but it seems relevant to what we're doing here too. Because at times the Buddhist teachings do challenge us deeply. They confront some of our most cherished delusions about who we are and how the world is. And at times they can be experienced as jolting, jarring, perhaps shocking us out of a complacency that we didn't know we had. But that's not all they do. Even in that, they also offer us consolation, comfort, solace, relief from the dukkha that's just an inherent aspect of being human. So at different times in our practice, we might benefit more from one aspect than the other. But overall, I think we need both. Together, the confronting and the consoling aspects of the Dharma can work to wake us up and to keep us balanced. So with that as maybe a pretty long preamble, I'd like to revisit a key theme of the Buddha's teachings. It's one that we've already touched into a few times, but maybe it's more relevant than ever at this stage in the retreat. And that's the theme, the insight into anicca, impermanence, instability, change. And I'd like to highlight this theme from a few different perspectives, because now we're in the last phase of this retreat, just recognizing how we usually relate to endings as well as beginnings, it's always useful not only here on retreat, but also in our everyday lives. So just to ease into this exploration, I'd like to start with how we experience impermanence in the natural world. I think most of us can appreciate the truth of change more easily in the context of the natural environment. And certainly one of the benefits of a long retreat like this is that we get to experience all of those changes, transitions from late summer to autumn or fall through to winter. And in the countryside all around us, we can appreciate that transition gradually from lush green meadows and woodlands through all of the spectacular colors of autumn leaves flaring and falling and then subsiding into the monochrome starkness of bare branches, casting their shadows over the dry stone walls through winter. 
And there's a famous passage in the Diamond Sutra from the Mahayana tradition that some of you may know. It refers to an image that the Buddha himself used earlier in the Pali Canon. So it says, So you should view this fleeting world as a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And if we're in a a balanced frame of mind, maybe we nod wisely and we hear these poetic evocations of impermanence. And I think for the most part we can accept there are just natural rhythms of change and seasons. And I think we're pretty happy to accept change when it results in the end of something that we don't like or don't want. For example, when that back pain finally releases, we're totally down with the truth of Anicca. But when it comes back again a few minutes later, we're not so keen on it. We resist it and wish that the absence of back pain would last a bit longer, preferably forever. And I think there's something in us that still believes that we should be able to master the truth of impermanence so that we can make the bad stuff go away as quickly as possible and make the good stuff stick around forever. It's pretty obvious when we hear it like that. This is delusion. It's ignorance. But opening to this truth on deeper and deeper levels, it's not easy because it is such a core, primal desire. So the antidote to that ignorance is exactly what we're doing here. Sitting in meditation, practicing opening to change, impermanence, on the moment-to-moment level. And just through doing that, we develop equanimity and the wisdom to navigate that very same change and impermanence in the bigger picture of our lives. And as we develop more skill at being with change on the micro level, we're better able to open to the truth of impermanence, of our own impermanence, the impermanence of this flesh and blood body, the truth that every one of us here is going to die. We don't know when, of course, but we do know for sure that it will happen. And for some of us, it will happen sooner than we might have anticipated. And this, too, is a core aspect of impermanence, the truth of our own mortality, the truth that inside every one of us here is a skeleton just waiting to get out. (laughs) So you might just take a moment to notice What's it like to hear that theme? Perhaps for some of you there is openness, interest, curiosity. Maybe for others, flicker of resistance or aversion. Maybe tuning up, maybe you didn't even hear it. While for others, maybe you're just abiding in equanimity. So whatever your reaction, just see if you can make space for it. Again, due to the truth of impermanence, it will naturally change. 
And if necessary, you might just attune to some of the compassion that I was talking about this morning. So I don't know about for any of you, but for me, for many years, I would hear the Buddha's teaching on the first noble truth, where he mentions the suffering of birth, of aging, of illness, of death. And something in my mind would just skip over it. It was so automatic. It took me quite a while to even recognize that it was happening. And I'm not sure when or how that changed, but at some point I realized that metaphorically I'd been holding the truth of dukkha at arm's length, and especially the truth of death. So I decided to sign up for a foundation year of chaplaincy training with the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. And it was a beautiful training. And one of the gifts was it allowed me to do volunteer work in a nearby prison and a nearby hospice. And being in those places helped me turn towards what I habitually didn't want to know or see or experience. And at times I was surprised at the strength of my own resistance to all of that. So it was kind of a relief when a few years ago I found some research, a research study that describes that actually our brains apparently have a primal mechanism that distorts our understanding of death. And it, that distortion just reflexively makes us see death as an unfortunate event that only happens to other people. And maybe you recognize that in yourself. And the researchers theorize that the brain does this because it goes against the grain of our whole biology, which is to help us stay alive. So I mention this just to give us some sense of what we're up against when we do try to reorient the mind towards this deeper understanding of impermanence in terms of our own impermanence. So individually, we have this biological bias away from death. And then that bias is amplified collectively, culturally, societally. And we're conditioned to a surprising extent to make death into an enemy in a way that only actually creates more stress, more distress, more suffering. Because on some level, we all know that battling with death ultimately is futile. And to me, it's sad that there's so much of a collective denial about this truth of our own mortality because it creates a kind of taboo about going anywhere near exploring that reality. And in the time that I volunteered at the hospice here in Massachusetts, I saw what a huge difference it made when patients were able to open to and accept what was happening to them instead of fighting reality every step of the way. So just as one small example of that collective tendency to deny death, when I was doing the hospice work, there was one elderly lady who stood out for me because she was one of the few patients who seemed fully aware of the reality of her situation which was that she was in the last week or maybe two of her life. And in spite of that, she also had a pretty good sense of humor 
and was quite open to talking about it. So she and I had some good conversations. Now, on one visit not long before she died, I came into her room, and there was a giant bunch of shiny metallic helium balloons floating up on the ceiling. And each of those balloons had written on it in big pink letters, Get Well Soon. (laughs) And the lady saw me looking at these balloons, and she rolled her eyes and smiled and said, Yeah, right. And I knew that she had accepted what her best friend couldn't, that within a few more days she would be dead. Now, just to acknowledge that that woman's friend, no doubt she had good intentions. She was probably doing her best to be kind. And to be fair to her, there probably wasn't a range of helium balloons aimed at people who are dying. (laughs) So as far as I know, you can't buy balloons with slogans like, wishing you a peaceful transition. (laughs) May you let go with ease. Remember that you are loved. Or maybe, bon voyage. (laughs) So I think there's a whole gap in the market here, which (laughs) it's surprising, because I have the impression that in the U.S., gaps in the market are actually pretty rare. (laughs) So maybe it's slightly humorous, but this avoidance of the truth of dying, it has an emotional cost. And in speaking with other people who are dying, one of the challenges many of them talked about was that friends and family often don't want to accept or talk about the reality, and so the dying person can feel even more alone. And so finding for us the willingness to do this challenging inner work in relation to mortality has benefits not only for we ourselves, but also our family and our friends. And I think that's probably another reason that the Buddha made contemplation of death such an important part of this practice. And I know Greg spoke about this in part one, but, and that some of you have been doing this practice, but the Buddha recommended a practice known as the Five Subjects for Frequent Recollection, And he encouraged people to reflect every day on the truth of change, of impermanence, our mortality, and of karma. So I'd like to just share with you a translation of these verses from the Amravati chanting book. I shall chant it, and if you know it, then feel free to join in. I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise will become separated from me. I am the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma, 
abide supported by my karma. Whatever karma I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. So there's a lot we could explore in those five verses, but I'm going to stay focused just on that invitation to acknowledge I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. I also want to acknowledge, as I shared in the reflections this morning in relation to compassion, we want to take care with this reflection because it is so powerful. It can be confronting. And like I said this morning, we want to only take on those practices that we have enough capacity and steadiness to do. So what I'll do tonight is just offer you an overview of some ways into this practice. And then if it feels useful, you might explore it later on. So what I'd like to do is focus on how we might approach this as a practice in the context of the Satipatthana Sutta, specifically the practices that are laid out in the first establishment of mindfulness. And I'm following the Buddha's lead here because he was such a skillful teacher. Over and over again, he emphasized the importance of a gradual approach. And we see this in the practices from the first establishment of mindfulness. In mindfulness of the body, there are six different techniques for exploring mindfulness of the body. First three are ones we're all familiar with. Mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of postures, mindfulness of daily activities. As you know, they're about being with our bodily experience from within, just as it is. The last three practices within this section on mindfulness of the body, they have a slightly different approach. They use concepts to some extent to help us develop a wiser relationship to the body. So these three slightly lesser known techniques are contemplating the body in relation to its anatomical parts, contemplating the body in relation to its elemental qualities, and contemplating the body as a corpse in decay. So you might get a sense from that of why these practices aren't so commonly taught in the West, at least outside of monastic settings. Again, I think it's because of our individual and our collective bias, not wanting to really take in the reality of our own physical nature. So when we do pay closer attention to our actual embodied experience, we start to gain insight into just how little control we actually have over our bodies. We can't stop them from getting injured, from getting sick, from aging, and of course from eventually dying. And I know some of you here, you're navigating different kinds of health challenges So you're living with this truth very acutely. Many of you, likewise, have had serious injuries. But even if you've so far managed to escape ill health and injury, all of us 
even those of you who are younger, we're aging. We're going to die. And so at least on an intellectual level, we can understand that clinging to, trying to control the body is a source of suffering. And these practices are inviting us instead to develop a balanced and healthy relationship to our embodiment, finding a middle way between not hating it on one hand and also not taking excessive pride in it on the other. So coming back to the Satipatthana Sutta, those last three contemplations, I'm going to take them slightly out of order and start with the one that we've already explored to some extent. This is contemplating the body in terms of its four elemental qualities, experiencing it very directly as an interplay of changing qualities or elements, traditionally referred to as earth, water, fire, and wind or air. And Bante spoke about this quite a bit earlier on in this retreat. These are a way of directly knowing aspects of our physical experience as hardness and softness, pressure, solidity, flow, movement, vibration, and so on. And the benefit of exploring the body like this is it helps us to know our physical experience just as it is, without taking it personally, without identifying with it as me, mine, who I am. And Joseph referred to this in his talk last week, how experiencing the body just in terms of its elemental qualities helps us to disidentify with it as something that is us or belongs to us. And as he said, generally we don't tend to think in terms of my warmth or my pressure or my tingling. It's just elemental qualities being known. There's a second powerful benefit of doing this practice in that it begins to break down that sense of ourselves as being completely separate entities that are disconnected from the natural world around us. And we start to have a much more immediate sense that whatever happens out there to the environment directly affects us too. Because in many ways, we're no different. So if you'd like to explore these four elemental qualities externally as well as internally, which is actually recommended in the Satipatthana Sutta, one way you can do this is by practice, practicing hugging a tree. So seriously, you might go into the forest, find yourself a suitable tree, ask its permission, and then just let your body come into direct contact with the trunk of that tree and stay there, rest. Feel those same elemental qualities of hardness and softness, roughness and smoothness, warmth and coolness that are in the tree trunk. They're present in your own body too. And you might directly know that you are a part of nature. You're not apart from it, not separate. So hopefully this is a relatively accessible way into acknowledging the body's elemental nature. And as we do that, it becomes easier to open to its organic 
flesh, blood, bone nature too. And this is where the fourth contemplation in mindfulness of the body comes in. Contemplation of the body in terms of a list of 32 anatomical parts. And the purpose of relating to the body through that lens is to see again the body with wisdom as it really is, impermanent, not fully under our control, and neither inherently beautiful nor inherently unbeautiful. So with this list of the 32 parts, just to acknowledge, it's not intended to be a complete description of the body's anatomy. It's pretty much just a representative selection of different aspects of the body. And it starts with those that are more solid, such as the bones, and then it progresses through to those that are less solid, the fleshy parts, and then it ends with liquids such as saliva and urine. And so traditionally this practice is done by reciting the list of the body parts out loud and just noticing any responses or reactions to each word. So I'm going to read the list in a moment, not as a full meditation practice, but just hearing the list named out loud, you might notice how you respond. With some of the parts that are named, maybe you get a direct felt sense of them. So for example, bones, when you hear the word bones, you might immediately connect with the hardness of the bones somewhere in the body. For other parts, maybe for example the spleen, you might not know where the spleen is located, let alone what it feels like. But at least intellectually you know you do have a spleen and it's probably doing something that's helping you to stay alive. So as you hear this list, you might just connect with that part of the body in whatever way you can, either through a felt sense of it or through intellectual knowledge, maybe by visualizing it from anatomy books. And as you do it, you'll also be paying attention to the mind, just noticing any reactions, maybe aversion or confusion, irritation, interest, openness, maybe even gratitude. So you're not trying to manufacture any specific response, just listening, noticing what comes up. So these are the instructions from the Satipatthana Sutta. And further, practitioners, a contemplative contemplates the same body bounded by the skin up from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the head as full of many kinds of substances, saying, in this body there are head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, tendons, bones, marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, 
small intestines, bowels, the stomach and its contents, excrement, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, oils, saliva, mucus of the nose, lubricants of the joints, and urine. So what's it like just to hear those different aspects of the body named in that pretty matter-of-fact way? For me, it helped to show how much I often unconsciously try to deny this biological nature of the body, how much I try to censor out all of those aspects of the body that are conventionally, socially unattractive. So it can be a relief, maybe, to just acknowledge this body is organic. It does produce bile and phlegm and pus and sweat and so on. It's not my personal shortcoming. It's not something I need to be ashamed of, in spite of what societal values of capitalism and consumerism often try to tell me. So coming closer to the truth of impermanence on deeper and deeper levels. This is supported by the final contemplation of mindfulness of the body. And this is a series of contemplations of a corpse in decay. And this part of the sutra is definitely not taught as often. Again, because of that resistance that we see individually, collectively. And on a societal level, there are whole industries that are devoted to denying the truth that our bodies are aging, let alone the fact that they're dying. So even though this practice can bring up fear at times, a fear that we often have developed all kinds of strategies to avoid feeling, no matter how much we might try to deny it, that fear is often driving us unconsciously in all kinds of ways. But to when we're able to keep gradually turning towards this fear of death, to meet it with kindness, with care, with compassion, that fear can be metabolized, and eventually it releases altogether. And in that process, because we've softened that core primal fear, all of our other fears can be seen in a new light, and they tend not to have quite as much impact on us. So here are the actual instructions from the Satipatthana Sutta. Again, practitioners, as though one were to see a corpse thrown aside in a channel ground, one, two, or three days dead, bloated, livid, and oozing matter, being devoured by crows, hawks, vultures, dogs, jackals, various kinds of worms, a skeleton with flesh and blood, 
held together with sinews, a skeleton without flesh and blood, held together with sinews, disconnected bones scattered in all directions, bones bleached white, the color of shells, bones heaped up more than a year old, bones rotten and crumbling to dust. One compares this same body with it thus. This body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. Now in most Western countries, we don't have the opportunity usually to study actual corpses. But the text makes it clear that this is intended to be an imaginative exercise. It says, as though one were to see a corpse. So if this feels useful, we can engage with this practice creatively, finding whatever ways we can to just acknowledge the truth of this body being mortal. So for example, my first teachers in Thailand, they encouraged us whenever we saw the body of a dead animal not to turn away from it, but to spend a little time with it and just reflect, my body too is of this same nature. Thus it will become, cannot escape it. So a few years ago, I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to go to an autopsy lab and to look at cadavers, bodies that had been dissected for medical training purposes. Maybe some of you have also had that experience, so you know how powerful it can be. And just to say, I know too that for some cultures, some societies around the world, the practice of performing autopsies, it challenges some pretty deep cultural or religious beliefs around death. And even if we don't have those kinds of beliefs ourselves, I think there's still something pretty challenging about dissecting a, a dead human body. So when I was invited to go to the autopsy lab, I went with some apprehension, anticipating that it would be a gruesome or a grueling experience. But before we actually got to view the cadavers, we were met by the lab's director. And just the way she spoke about her work, was it was deeply inspiring. I kind of would have assumed that spending day after day being around cut-up corpses might have made her a bit blasé about working with dead bodies. But it was so clear from the way that she spoke and the way that she treated each cadaver that she had enormous respect for these human bodies. And so when the time came to look at the first one, I felt this sense of awe, even a kind of sacredness, which is not a word that I use very often. And this body had been prepared so that we could see inside it, could see various organs like the pancreas and the gallbladder, the salivary glands, the brain, to name just a few. And the complexity of just the physical aspect of the body was awe-inspiring. It's miraculous that all of these different components of meat and bone in here, they're able to function together to support a human life. 
just the physical meat and bone aspect of the body is complex enough. And then we also have the chemical system of the hormones that are constantly being released to help us to digest and to sleep, to wake up, to regulate our moods. And then interacting with the chemicals is the electrical system of the body, the firing of neurons that are sending millions of messages to different parts of our bodies and our organs to keep the whole system responding appropriately. To me, it's a miracle that all of these different parts function together so well most of the time. But it was still confronting to look at that assemblage of meat and bones and realize I am of that same nature. Now, the director of the lab, as she brought out each uh, body, she told us the age and the sex of them. And the first one she brought out was a man that happened to be the same age as my father. And I just felt drawn to spending more time with that particular corpse. And as I stayed with it, I noticed his hands and how like my father's hands they were. The rest of the corpse had had the skin removed so that we could see all the organs. But on the hands, the skin was still there. And the skin was wrinkled and mottled with brown age spots. I noticed that the fingernails were just slightly yellow and they were ridged like the nails on my father's hands. And just taking this in, it hit me in a new way that my father was going to become like this. He, too, was of the nature to die. And although it was deeply sobering to take that in, it was also very helpful. Because when my father did die a few years later, I was able to go and sit with his body and just spend time taking in that reality that in some fundamental way he was gone. And I looked again at his hands, the ridged fingernails, the brown age spots, and I reached out to touch them. And then I recognized on my own hands one or two little faint brown spots. And my warm hands were touching his. And I realized these two, these hands one day also will be cold. Now at the same time, my father was so much more than his meat and bone body. All of us are so much more than this meat and bone body. And my father's physical body is gone, but he lives on in memories of all kinds. And here, contemplation of our own mortality can be such a powerful stimulus to reflect what kind of memories, impressions, impacts do we want to have on others? What do we want our legacy to be? So again, the point of this practice, it's not to be morbid, it's not to induce despair, but it's to encourage, to strengthen the courage to live life more consciously, more fully. We don't know when we're going to die. And practicing with that truth, it can bring us more clarity about what are our deepest aspirations, what really matters to us. 
And I know from my own experience, it's so easy to be complacent, to procrastinate, to just go with the flow, drift along on the tide of usually somewhat unskillful motivations. So as an antidote to that complacency, we can ask ourselves, if I did die tonight, is there anything I'd regret? And people who work with the dying in hospice and palliative care settings, they often report that there are very common themes that come up for people towards the end of their life. And a few years ago, there was an Australian palliative care nurse called Bronnie Ware. She published a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And in this book, she described the phenomenal clarity of vision that people gain at the end of their lives. And she compiled some of what they said because she wanted to help people learn from their wisdom. She said that when questioned about any regrets they had or anything they would do differently, common themes surfaced again and again. And this is the number one regret that she heard. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself not the life others expected of me. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. So as she describes it, this was the most common regret of all. She said when people realize that their life is almost over and they look back clearly on it, it's easy to see how many dreams have gone unfulfilled. Most people had not honored even a half of their dreams and had to die knowing that it was due to choices they had made or not made. Health brings a freedom very few realize until they no longer have it. So in a similar way, a few years ago, a friend of mine here in the U.S. uh, died of cancer. And as she was getting close to the end of her life, I asked her, if there was anything she wished that she'd known earlier or any kind of advice that she might have for me and her other friends from her vantage point of being near to death. She was quite weak at that stage and she thought for quite a while before she finally said, just practice letting go on deeper and deeper levels. And that advice really stayed with me And one aspect of death contemplation that I sometimes grudgingly have appreciated is just how powerfully it reveals where and how I'm not willing to let go yet. Where and how I still do cling, hold on, resist, and I'm not free. The second aspect of death contemplation that I appreciate because it's simultaneously confronting and consoling, is that death is universal. The more I can open to the truth that this is how it is for every human being who's ever been born, the more it strengthens compassion. In fact, not just compassion, but every one of the four Brahma-Vihara qualities. So I'd like to close with a quote from Gil Fronstel that summarizes this crucial role of impermanence in our practice. 
He says, change is a central feature of life. It can be exhilarating, frightening, exhausting, or relieving. It can spark sadness or happiness, resistance or grasping. Insight into impermanence is central to Buddhist practice. Buddhist practice points us towards becoming equanimous in the midst of change and wiser in how we respond to what comes and goes. In fact, Buddhism could be seen as one extended meditation on transience as a means to freedom. Confronting impermanence profoundly in this meditative way can open us to liberation. The final liberative level of impermanence is the movement towards letting go at the deepest level of our psyche. Ajahn Chah once said, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. This release is sometimes called Mahasukha, the great happiness, which is said to be the only happiness that is ultimately reliable. So may we all taste more and more moments of Mahasukha, the great happiness, through our balanced efforts here on this retreat for the benefit of all beings everywhere. So thank you for your attention. Let's just take a moment or two of silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.